Today's guest is Pauline Glamacek. Pauline has had four near-death experiences, and her most recent one was a negative NDE that had some powerfully positive after effects. Pauline, thank you for joining me, and welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me, Jeff. I'm, I'm so pleased to be here, and I'm so happy that you do the kind of work that you do, because um, there's nothing more powerful than then the number of people who are coming forward and uh, the way that you conduct your interviews is so accepting and um, because the range and the diversity of near-death experiences is as individual as we are. Mm -hmm. So I've just um, really loved discovering your show recently and I'm just wrapped to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you and and you are so right. I mean, everybody's... NDE is different from everybody else's. That's right. As as different as our life experiences are, the NDE seems to follow that same kind of um, pattern, you know, uh, mm. that uh, it's a very, very individualized. Um, but as experiences, we really look for those similarities and um, that validation is so very healing, Um mm. I'm. Um, I primarily am working with people uh, who are integrating their spiritually transformative experiences, um, but that only happened for me in 2015, um, quite recently, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. So um, it's that happened because of a negative NDE. Mm that I finally had to accept, you know, um, that that it was a real phenomenon and that, you know, uh, it was uh, something that had happened to me on more than one occasion. Mm. Well, if you don't mind sharing, let's start on the day that that happened and let us know what happened. Okay. So in 2015, I um, was coming out of a very uh, violent relationship um uh, the um my partner was a police officer and um i ended up being internally injured and had to have emergency surgery um now the the uh the injury didn't it was uh, didn't manifest uh, until um, a little bit later so it was something that it was an injury that you know caused internal bleeding that formed a mass and um, it was a very, very difficult time in my life and I became very, very bitter towards my ex-partner and towards everybody really. I felt that I didn't have support. I felt very alone. Um, yeah, I became very defensive and as a matter of fact, even the way that I was treated by the hospital, I was transferred three times, you know, my surgery was put off. Um, I was, you know, basically without food for four days before they could put a team together. Um, yeah, I, was, I wasn't I was treated very well in the hospital. Um, so that was, uh, that sort of just compounded that kind of, 
a bitterness that was growing inside of me. And I'm telling you this because I think it is relevant to the type of experience we have. And I think it's important that people understand that our internal states are important. Um, So, yeah, I, I ended up having this surgery and during the surgery, I, um, while I was under anaesthetic, I um, awoke and I thought I awoke to re- my recovery and I thought I, I woke to nurses trying to pull me off of the operating table and put me onto another bed. But, in fact, they were... Um, they weren't nurses at all. I opened my eyes and they were pulling me. So I was sitting up from my body and they were to my right side and there were three figures. Um, one had dark curly hair, I remember that, and very clearly. And uh, they were just saying, come on, come with me, come, come, come with us, you know, come with us. We're here to help you and I'm like, I can't come with you. I've just had... This, this surgery and I looked down and I could see all of the surgeons and um, but I didn't sort of click because I still thought that I was in my mind I thought that I was coming out of anesthetic um, so I really didn't click that it was a, a near-death experience at that point but as I resisted I saw that their faces became quite malevolent And um, they became more insistent and just aggressive with the way that they were pulling me and insisting. And um, I could see that they were displeased that I was resisting. And so I, at that stage, because I'd had other near-death experiences, I realised, I looked again and I saw the doctors all in a kerfuffle um, around the foot of my bed and the nurses and there were three or four doctors and two or three nurses and it was just a packed operating theatre. And uh, there were complications with the surgery I later learned. Um, But I'm not going to go into the gory details of all of that. Um, But, yeah, so I realised that I was having an Edith experience and I just said, I'm not going with you, I'm waiting for Jesus Christ because my other near-death experience was with Jesus. And so as soon as I said that, they released me and I was back in the blackness. And I awoke in the recovery theatre, in the recovery room, and I knew. um, As soon as I awoke, I knew that I'd had a near-death experience and that it was real. What's more, when I awoke from this surgery, even though it was a very traumatic um, surgery and there had to be three specialists there and um, things went wrong, I saw everybody as being absolutely glowingly, pleasantly beautiful. And this is something, again, that confirmed that I just had another near-death a near-death experience because when I had my near-death experience as a child, I saw in my life review, Jesus showed me how he sees everybody. So I understood then that I was seeing everybody 
the way that Jesus sees them and that I could see everybody's inner beauty. And um, I wasn't shy about, you know, I didn't really care what people thought. I wasn't shy about telling the doctors when they came in. It was just like, oh, my goodness, you're also, you know, I couldn't get over how beautiful. It took a while for that to settle down um, of how beautiful everybody looked. Um, And the thing was that those who were spiritually attuned also saw me in that way and they knew that I was in that kind of state of um, grace. This is, uh, I know that there are probably uh, more religious terms or spiritual terms to use, but I can only describe it as a state of grace because I could, the, the way that I could perceive people was so, um, uh, open-hearted and so, uh, oh, it's hard to describe, but I just saw everybody as profoundly beautiful. And people responded to that kind of energy from a long way away. But, yeah, one, I had to go for a follow-up surgery and um, at that stage I had a nurse, as things would happen, who was also very much spiritually attuned and uh, a very... Um, an adorer of Christ, as I call us, um, she uh, recognised that I was in that state and she uh, called the uh, spiritual counsellor of the hospital who, after half an hour of speaking with me, offered me a job. Mm. So, um, you know, I mean, these things don't happen that you go in for surgery and you're offered a a job as a spiritual counsellor within the major hospital, city hospital, you know. Um, so it was this state of grace that um, that lasted for a, a beautiful period of time. Um, but, yeah, after I came home and in recovery and I sat at the keyboard and I looked up things like um, uh, just looked up things of my 11-year-old near-death experience like... Um, pictures from space, things that I'd not been so interested in. And I just began to receive confirmation after confirmation that my 11-year-old experience was true. Um, and those, as those barriers broke down within me to the, the barriers that I'd mentally put up against my near-death experiences, they broke down more and more of the gifts of uh, my near-death experience opened up and um, and I came to accept and start to talk about my encounter with Christ as an 11-year-old. Before we move on to that one, can you tell me again what those beings look like that that were trying to get you to go with them? Look, initially they looked like nurses. They just looked like normal people, ordinary people. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I resisted and their, their, their colouring changed as they sort of revealed themselves to me as I resisted them, um, again I felt like it was... Uh, 
you know, that my mind had put an assumption that they were nurses. And as as I began to, now this might make sense to you as I talk about my 11-year-old near-death experience because there's this uh, kind of getting your mind out of the way, the earthly mind that is full of preconceived ideas and all of that, um, as that fell away, you know, my my presumption that it was a nurse, as I realised that it wasn't because it didn't make sense what they were doing, then they turned grey, sort of grey looking. That's the only way I can describe it. They were grey. <laughs> Would you say they're still human looking but grey or just yeah. even not human looking anymore? No, they were still human looking because I was very fast to say, I'm not going with you, I'm waiting for Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. That was a very, you know, when that penny dropped, I immediately said that. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, you mentioned that you had been bitter. Do you think yes. your bitterness attributed to to you encountering those beings? Absolutely. And why? Absolutely. Do you, and why is that, do you think? Because I had a deficit of love. I had, you know, a terrible thing happen to me, but I wasn't willing to, at that stage, I wasn't in a place to let go of that bitterness. Um, I wasn't at that stage ready to let go of the hurt. I was still hurting very much and still being further hurt by the um, mistreatment by the hospital staff and um, just the whole, the way that my, um, everything was handled. Um, Even with the surgery, I asked them, please open me up. Don't do any kind of endoscopic, just open me up and take, because there were adhesions and what have you, it ended up being a blunt force, a blunt force trauma that um, caused um, an ovarian torsion. Mm-hmm. But the the mass that formed around that torsion had adhered to my appendix and my intestines, and you know, got ugly. Right. And uh, yeah, and and so they weren't, you know, they sort of. Uh, had to assemble quite a team of specialists. Um, okay, yeah, it's probably a lot of scar yeah. tissue buildup, and it just all got exactly one yeah. big mass of stuff there. Mess, yeah, <laughs> a big mess of mess. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, 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 it was definitely the bitterness within me. Um, I was pretty much consumed by that because. Uh, because I was a victim of horrific violence, you know, and mm-hmm. um, if we don't get the support that we need in a timely way, that can set in, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of um, that kind of disposition. I think it's amazing that you are able to understand what's going on, and I've done over a hundred of these NDE podcasts. And I think you're the first guest that really understood their state of being and appears to say that 
the way that their indie happened was due to their state of, of being. And it's something that I'm going to kind of keep in mind for further NDE podcasts is kind of finding out what the person's state of being was before that. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them are things that you can't really, you know, some people are just in complete accidents getting hit by buses or cars or whatever. And it just, it, it was just something that just boom happened quickly. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know how much the state of being w- will always be affected. Maybe it always does. I don't know. But I'm glad that we talked about it. I think it does. I think it does affect the experience that we have, whether that effect is just initial and as the NDE progresses, it changes, um, which I think is the case. Mm-hmm. But uh, certainly my profound experience as an 11 year old Mm -hmm. uh, which I finally integrated thanks to that negative one Um, that was certainly uh, as the result of an accident Um, as an 11 year old child an oblivious 11 year old child um, that was the result of an accident and it was just completely different to this um, I would call this an, um, yeah, a negative encounter, an, an encounter with negative entities. You had this after effect where you'd see people as their inner beauty or as their true selves. Yes. How long did that last for? That lasted for almost a year. And somebody asked me, and it's funny, you know, we don't think about things until we're asked, you know. Um, questions are so powerful in helping us um, understand ourselves better and uh, things that happen to us. Um, So I'm really happy to work as a a person who asks a lot of questions, Mm -hmm. like a bit like yourself. Um, But yeah, I, I, somebody else asked me and I thought, yeah, it it lasted about a year and it ended when I was in Bali and I met a spiritual or my sister brought to me a spiritual um, a Hindu uh, man who had spiritual gifts. He wasn't a healer, but he was a seer. Um, and he also saw that I had this gift. Um, in fact, he told me when my sister wanted to have, you know, took me along to have our fortunes or future told or what have you, and I'm sort of thinking to myself, well, I kind of you know <laughs> I kind of do that but it will be interesting to meet somebody who is spiritually um on a, a you know that seeing level so I went along and um he said to me oh you're more powerful than I am and I thought well bang that's why you're not as powerful as me because you consider the power in it not the benevolence in it mm. Um, but yeah, he pursued me and, um, he, uh, basically invaded boundaries. He would, I know that this sounds a bit woo woo, but he would text me after I returned to Australia and say, oh, did you enjoy that shower and this and that? And, um, so my walls very much went up, um, and yeah, my walls went up. And I became much more conscious of boundaries and the importance of spiritual boundaries. Um, so I wasn't as um, 
and as soon as I started to practice spiritual boundaries more, that kind of um, I still can see people. I still do see people like that when we're in an intimate situation, but not as I used to walking down the street, look at somebody and think, oh, you're so beautiful. And they'd look up at me and glow and smile and as if, you know, thank you, you know, mm-hmm. without even exchanging a word. Um, so that sort of stopped once those, once I started putting, necessarily putting up those um, boundaries. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. The NDE that you had when you were 11, was that the one where you encountered Christ? Yes, yes. Um, I had an NDE when I was in hospital as a child uh, with pneumonia, just an out-of-body experience, a drowning experience uh, at the age of six or seven. But at the age of 11, um, I had a very profound experience which although in earth time it lasted, they tell me I was only um, out of <laughs> out of touch for um, a matter of minutes. But for me, it lasted for hours. You know, it lasted for a matter of hours. Mm. Um, seeming the f- same feeling that we have of, uh, you know, two hours is the kind of information and and um, sensation and uh, everything that I had during that near-death experience. So I'll go right ahead and tell you that one finally. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was 11. We were at a family picnic. Uh, we were visiting friends in Victoria. I'm from South Australia. And uh, we were going to the Mount Macedon Ranges we were at the Mount Macedon Ranges and um, I just remember, Jeff, and I still remember actually going. I, I don't have so many memories that are so profound as that memory of actually going down this. Um, it was autumn and the leaves and the sunlight through the um, autumn leaves and the trees. It was just this beautiful avenue coming up to the uh, picnic grounds of, of the uh, Mount Macedon Ranges. It was just magical, the light. And I remember just going, wow, you know, as if I'd never seen I'd never seen the light look like that. Um, and before the accident happened, we did go, there is some kind of, um, there's a huge crucifix uh, as a, um, as a monument to the Anzacs, I think. It's a, um, yeah, a war monument, I think. But it's just this massive crucifix on a hill. And it is known as uh, that region, the Macedon Ranges, is known as a very spiritual region. It's, um, it's you know, there are ley lines across the earth where... Um, the atmosphere is different and the magnetic field is different and and they're known as spiritually powerful places. In fact, the Aboriginal people of that region also acknowledge that it's a very spiritual place. Um, of course, as a child, I didn't know any of this. I jumped out of the car with everybody and um, we were all, you know, I was 11 and there were a couple of boys and I was just at that stage of becoming interested in boys mm-hmm. And um, uh, these 
guys were quite fun to hang out with, but, you know, I was in that stage of wanting to hang out with boys and um, race boys and I was playing basketball with boys and all that kind of thing. Anyway, so I was very excited to be um, there. But, yeah, and they were racing down this hill and I was last and that, you know, didn't sit right with my ego (laughs) at that stage. Um, So I really legged it and I tripped on a rock and instead of falling flat, you know, going with the impetus and falling down, I flung myself back really forcefully. And later I learned that I struck my head um, on a rock. And uh, when I flung myself back, I remember, you know, scrunching my eyes, anticipating the, the feeling of the blow, but I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel the blow. Um, and so I opened my eyes thinking, what's going on? That's weird. I didn't feel, didn't feel any pain. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I opened my eyes, I was already out of my body. And um, I was already looking up, but I thought, well, still not feeling any pain. And I, you know, looked around and as I looked around, I could see my body, but now I was already um, devoid of that. I was already lighter, you know, I was already experiencing a lightness of being um, and I was experiencing being drawn up. So... I looked back and I glanced at my body, but I was not interested because I was more interested. I was more, um, you know, interested in the feeling that I had and, and that feeling of being drawn up. And soon enough, I had a beautiful vista to look at, you know, seeing the Mount Macedon Ranges from the vantage point that I was at was just enthralling and I was just completely immersed in the experience of being that that freedom you know I had never been that kind of person who had dreamt of flying or anything like that so um to me it was just I was just enthralled that's the only way I can describe it um but as well as that I saw my body and I knew instantly that everything had peeled away, you know. It's not only that I'd peeled away from my body, but all of the encumbrances, I didn't have any fear. I didn't have any forward thinking or backward thinking. I just had the complete, you know, being smack bang in the moment Um, and no... Um, kind of, yeah, just no um, monkey mind, as we call it in psychology. There was just no monkey mind. There was just complete observance. You know, I was the observer and um, I was my true self. I was not encumbered with any projections or any kind of uh, preconceptions, just... I might be going on about this a little bit, but it was just such a beautiful, free feeling to be unencumbered by the mind and by fear. Um, But I did go through the clouds and once I felt the cold of the clouds, I did feel a curiosity and a fear about, oh, well, how far am I going? 
you know. I knew I was going, but I, how far am I going? Um, and, yeah, the cold sort of brought me into this feeling of trepidation. I didn't, yeah, because suddenly there was this different sensation and so I realised that I did have sensation. And um, I looked up and this, I don't know, is it called the stratosphere? I don't remember exactly the different, you know, ionosphere, stratosphere, the different labels yeah. of them all, but I guess you're just saying the edge of the atmosphere, right? Yeah, yeah. I was on the edge of the atmosphere and it was a, a kind of cerule- a deep cerulean blue, sort of like that blue behind me in that painting. Mm-hmm. Kind of like that, but a bit deeper. Um, so it wasn't like a cobalt blue. It was a that kind of blue. Um, and then there was like a bit of rainbow and it was dark space like you have behind you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I looked and I thought, my goodness, am I just going to be flo- floating up in space? <laughs> you know, like, I couldn't believe it. Um, you know, there was barely, we'd barely gotten out of the black and white television stage. There were no such pictures at that stage of, um, you know, galaxies or um, the Orion Nebula like I've seen now. Um so it was, uh, yeah, it was very, um, it was all, you know, to see that in colour was just amazing. I was gobsmacked. But I was afraid as well. And as soon as I looked and thought, well, how far am I going to go? What's going to happen? A dark portal appeared. Um, and just before I knew it, I was just drawn into this portal. Um, it just appeared like a, I don't know what, you know, some people would call them wormholes or tunnels, but to me it was a portal. And um, it just vacuumed me in to its darkness. It was a deep blackness initially and then it was kind of grey. Um, and I felt, even though I didn't feel uh, a wind, but I just knew there was some, there was a sensation of travelling very, very, very fast um, because the grey was a blurring of the light and as I realised that it was going a little bit lighter, I looked up again thinking where's this going to go and I saw the light, the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> and um, when I saw the light, there was just this, because by the time I saw the light it was already within the tunnel, you know, there were already speckles of it within the tunnel. Um, and so, yeah, I was I was there very, very quickly. And as soon as I was there, it was like I came through and above and uh, so I was in a different atmosphere now. I was in a golden kind of atmosphere um, and I could see it was like I descended on this plane and but I could see first from the top. I could see um, I could see them from different angles. Actually, um, this bunch, this group of people, and they were all very, very happy to see me. And they knew me. Um, at the age of eleven, so far I had only lost my grandfather, who I was, and that was I was three when I lost him, and. Um, I knew it was him. I knew that the others were my ancestors. 
um, this feeling of familiarity, like I'd done this before and was returning after a trip. Um, that feeling was definitely there, um, as well as the feeling of homecoming, which I know that you've probably heard many times. Um so, yeah, that was there and they were there and we communicated. Um, it was like we communicated with words, but we didn't. I don't remember that much of what we communicated except that they were so happy to see me and they were a welcoming party and they um, embraced me. And But they sort of fade into the background because of what happened next. Um while we were welcoming each other and, you know, it was, you know, all this happy to be there, all this kind of um, excitement over that, I ended up looking around um, and taking in where I was, you know. Um, I was kind of on a plane. It was like it wasn't a 3D. I very much felt like it was a very flat plane and behind me were the stars and the, you know, the, the space. But in front of me there was a wall and it was almost like a dome kind of thing, but there were mountains. I could see, I could see it holistically and I could see also the wall. I could see the arched gate that they, my family was standing in front of. Um, and... Over this wall, I saw a light. And first of all, I thought, oh, it must be a different, must be the sun, you know. And But then my relatives noticed, looked too, and I could see that they knew what was happening. So I looked and uh, the light became bigger. It was like a, a huge golden orb. Um, and it had, it had like murk. It was like mercury, like gold mercury, I would describe it as. And um, But as it came closer, it dissolved and it came parallel to me. And um, as I looked into it, as it came closer, I could see that it had a white centre and then I could see that the silhouette of a person and then I saw a person stepping out towards me. He was dressed in a white robe. And um, he came towards me and I just stood gobsmacked completely, you know, not only was it fantastic enough that I was meeting my relatives, mm-hmm. I had, because you are completely in the moment, you don't have any expectations, things, certainly what whatever you ask happens, unfolds, you know, as soon as you're ready for that information that is given to you. But I had no expectation that, you know, um, it was it was overwhelming. You know, this um, this new development. <laughs> um, he um, stepped out of the light, and I could see he was he was in a white robe. And as I saw him clearer within myself, I said, I thought to myself, not out loud. Um, is that who I think it is? Is that Jesus Christ? Is, is that Jesus? Is he, he's real. And as I said that in that kind of fashion, you know, he projected this laugh into me. 
It was this beautiful, warm chuckle, and it filled me. It completely filled me, this this um, delight. It, was a, it wasn't condescending in any way. It was just delight. Uh, and that's the first time I felt him delighting in me. And that first instance of seeing him and him seeing me is, um, you know, I can't believe that for so many years I pushed that aside. Um, But that was just the most beautiful, beautiful experience I've ever had. Um, But, you know, that wasn't enough. (laughs) Uh, and sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, that's a beautiful experience that you, that you just shared with us. Thank you. I don't think that anybody who um, who had had that who's had that kind of experience um, would find it easy to withhold that you know, that level of truth. Um, I certainly didn't find living easy while I was living in that withholding place. Um, so it's um, it's a real honour and privilege to share it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like that you experienced pure joy. And what, yes. what came to my mind, it may seem crazy, but it's like the joy of a child meeting Santa Claus or something. Um, but better, obviously. It was, it was more than that, Jeff, because it was penetrating, you know. Santa Claus is like, yippee, I'm going to get something. Uh-huh. Um, but it was childish joy, but it was penetrating. So it was his delight more than my joy. Mm-hmm. You know, and the realization that his de- that he completely delighted in me. That was, you know, when we're joyful about Santa Claus, it's about what he's going to give us. Mm-hmm. But th- this was that he he delighted in me. You know, yeah. a very funny looking, odd looking eleven year old, awkward girl, um, who was. Sassy and arrogant and all sorts of wrong. Um, I guess I kind of meant it in a way of like when Santa meets a child and you talked about that chuckle and that laugh and that happiness of being with the child. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I was always creeped out by Santa, so I guess I did. Maybe I should just edit that out of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. I mean, we all have different perceptions. That's the beauty of of everything. But, yeah, I didn't have that same kind of – I never got that feeling from Santa. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, it was just astounding. It was astounding. And um, when I realised it was also – very humbling when I realized that he laughed at me for not believing in him. Then I realized also that he knew that I didn't believe in him. Mm. And, um, excuse me. So now I was a little bit, you know, 
still uh, delighted, but very um, uh, humbled because I knew that he could read my me. You know, I, I couldn't hide anything from him. And so he called my name. Now, I don't know if it's my own psychology, my overlay that I didn't, that I am not sure whether he used my name. Um, You have to understand it's not because he makes us feel, he made me feel unworthy. It was just that his love is so great that you feel like, oh, my goodness, you know, anything that is not love is not good. (laughs) But um, I didn't understand that completely at that time. But, um, yeah, he, but he definitely called me by a name to him and um, as if I belonged to him. And, the, and in the way that he called me, I knew that I was of his tribe. And in understanding that I was of his tribe, I understood that there were other tribes, you know. Wow. Yeah, it, everything was like, it wasn't like a, here everything's about friction and we know good from bad because we know bad so we appreciate good or, you know, um, everything was kind of a one unfolding understanding. So if something was true, then um, it told a story about something else. It wasn't just black and white. Can you give me any kind of estimation or what your thoughts on what the other tribes were? No, I just knew because I didn't ask further about that. I was just enthralled by him. Mm. But that was information. So I knew that there were other tribes, mm. you know, but I was of his tribe. Um, yeah, so I understood that and I was very, you know, I was very happy to be of his tribe, but... Um, uh, yeah, just that that embrace from him, which was knowing that I was of his tribe and this physical embrace as well. Um, it just made me feel so full of love that I was embarrassed that I hadn't believed in him. And as soon as I was embarrassed, there was no shame or um, it was just the right thing to do to come to his feet. It was just like that it wasn't something I thought about I just found myself at his feet it wasn't like uh, consciously I'm deciding to go down and kneel at your feet I was just boom at his feet um and how did he respond to that he I was at his feet and I couldn't look at him for that minute because of my unbelief, you know. Um, How could I not believe in such a love, you know. And he didn't respond. He didn't respond. I I had my eyes closed and when I opened my eyes again, I saw his feet and I saw this whole, saw this light shining through his foot. And I didn't immediately put together that was the hole from the crucifixion. But once I did, it's like you see things and it's like, oh, oh, okay, wow, okay. And um, so I saw it and I realised then that the crucifixion was real. Not only was he real, um, but I guess, you know, as a child I had an aversion to, we were Catholic and, you know, just... Seeing that, you know, seeing a man on a cross 
mutilated and and just the whole concept as a child i found it repugnant i didn't understand it um i thought life was hard enough and that this kind of portrayal you know this religious portrayal was just something that it was the story of my religion mm-hmm. but i wasn't emotionally connected to it did you notice any other holes of light coming through him from other places of crucifixion? No, I didn't notice it in his hands when I first saw him and when he hugged me. Um, I didn't notice it later on when we talked. I just noticed it when I was right at his feet. Hmm. And then when I noticed it, he just imbued this little scene, which I can barely remember now. I know it was of blood and water. And at that stage, I didn't understand the water part. I do now. But I didn't understand that it was, you know, that he was pierced and water came out of his side. Um, But I saw just a very short scene of him carrying the cross and his blood dripping on the stone. Hmm. And just a short scene of him on the cross, which I can't remember now. You know, I can't like I can't remember it as I remember the other things he showed me. Mm. Um, but he just imbued that into me, and all I could say was, oh, "Does it still hurt? Does it still hurt?" You know, I just was overcome by the level of suffering. It was just I couldn't comprehend that it wouldn't hurt anymore. I couldn't comprehend that there were no repercussions on him. He was very much a man now. He wasn't a, um, I knew he was Jesus, I knew he was God, but there was this quality about him that was very human. Um, You know, he manifested that way to me that was very much a human being, you know. Um, So because of that, I thought, does it, you know, does it still hurt? Does it, you know, how have you, you know, how how did you survive that? Or, you know, I, I don't know. There were these very human questions that came up for me. And as soon as I said, does it still hurt, that light from his foot just shone bright, like blinded me. And I was transported when and I was suddenly there was like a fog, a little bit of a fog, and I was suddenly flying again. I was flying over this atmosphere, but very quickly over this uh, countryside, which was very barren um, with just very small pockets of green. You know, now when I see pictures of Israel, you know, in those days, of course, there were no such, you know, um, overhead flight that was very rare back in 1977 we're talking um so i was seeing uh, jerusalem from afar and i just he just projected me i don't know if i was a bird or a butterfly or just a spot but i was not conscious of having a body i was just a point of consciousness that he directed he directed me to where he wanted me to be, what he wanted me to see. And he put me in this crowd of people. There was two platforms. Um, There was a higher platform and then there was like a street view and it was quite, uh, you know, 
a contained area. Um, there were people down uh, on the street level who were just vitriolic, full of hate. And I couldn't, it wasn't just that I heard what they were saying, I could feel them, I could feel their vitriol. And this helped me understand my 2015 experience. I could feel their vitriol, I could feel their hate, their anger, their, you know, their bloodlust. It was so ugly. There was such a contrast coming from that love to seeing that, you know, and it had like an acrid quality that was almost a smell. You know. um, so I was repulsed by that naturally. I was repulsed by that and drawn to a woman who was standing there. She was very ordinary-looking middle-aged woman. Um, she looked very well worn. She was a working woman. Her hands, she was wearing a, a veil. Um, she was like in a, the veil was kind of a brown colour and I think it was linen, um, but her gown was like an indigo colour, her uh, robes, but she was covering her face. And I remember the colours because her black hair, like she, her hands were so rugged but her black hair came out and it was so black, but her face was lined and rugged and aged, you know. And so that really stood out to me that how, how black her hair was. Um, and so I took in her physical as attributes and she was older. She had quite a, a longish kind of face. She had dark almond-shaped eyes and they were dark brown. And this is important because... Um, I was asked about the colour of Jesus' eyes and um, I didn't really understand it. I was looking, I was by Mary because her eyes were very, very brown and his weren't. His eyes weren't that colour. Um, but, yeah, so she had beautiful, deep, almond-shaped eyes and, and as I looked into her eyes, I looked, I could see, everything that she was feeling. That's when I started to feel all of her sorrow and her deep, deep love and her uh, forbearance. Like she just had such self-control, but she was completely, you know, trembling. She couldn't control her body from convulsing. Um, so I was, you know, I had complete, empathy and I was feeling everything that she was feeling. So when I asked him if it still hurt, he projected me into that scene that it hurt him, that it hurt her so. So he told me another aspect of his nature that it hurts him when we hurt. It hurt him that it hurt his mother so. And when I was back with him, it was like, no, it doesn't hurt. He was just in full glory, you know. He, his, glories was, his glory was amplified to me. And he told me that he, he, he told me that um, it was his, I can't remember the exact words, but he just let me know that it was his glory to do that. It was his glory to, to sacrifice himself for the freedom of the world, you know, freeing people from, from, law, from the law through love. 
um, and that that freedom was for everyone, everyone. And I was like, for everyone? Because I knew that, you know, well, you had to be baptised, you had to do this, this, you know, there are all these things you had to do to go into the kingdom of heaven. And no, it was all just, no, it's for, he just let me know it was for everyone and that everything is about compassion and love. Um, and that glory, that joy that he had in conveying that to me, it was just, you know, all of the, everything was wiped away in that moment. And anyway, then he took me um, by the hand and sat me on a rock. And he was to my right side. And this has perplexed me for the longest time, but now I kind of know why he showed me this. But we just sat on a rock. He he sat just so close to me and I felt, I've never felt closer. He, and he sort of let me know that he's on my right side, you know, that he's there. And we sat on this rock and, as I said, there were no such thing as Aurora Borealis, you know, being shown to us in Australia on the television or anything like that. But we sat there and watched this nebula, and I think it was the Orion Nebula. I'm quite sure it was, looking at the uh, or the NASA photography now. Um, it was just the colours were just magnificent. Um, but all this time I was on the edge of the gates of the wall of the of the place, you know, of the, of heaven. Um, and so, yeah, my legs dangled into space and we were just watching this, these colors. And he let me know that, you know, his color had something to do with creation and he was, he was over creation and, um, the color featured very, very strongly in that message that he gave me. But he also showed me that he was above the galaxy and he was creating right at this moment creation was being made right at this very moment together um so yeah that was another profound thing that he let me know and then he said look here my child and his he drew his right hand in front of me and it was huge suddenly his hand was huge in space you know and in the remnant of the energy of his hand sort of like stardust was left and there was a book suddenly and it was tilted towards us and it seemed like a huge book to me and there was some writing on the front page but I can't remember now anyway so I sat next to him and I thought oh he's going to teach me he's going to be teaching me something now and the book just started to flick and it was like one of those old films you know everything was in freeze frame kind of thing but it was you know like the old-fashioned films without uh, the the, um, the silent movies, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I've since heard about Planck theory, which says that everything occurs in slides, sort of like an old-fashioned movie. It's a scientific theory. I, I just heard that, I think, a month ago, and I thought, wow, well, that really corresponds with my life review. Mm-hmm. So he was giving me a life review. Of course, I'd never heard of any such thing. I thought he was going to read me a story. So I became, in, you know, again, my mind was sort of thinking what was going to happen. But in this story, I saw these people, they were beautiful people and they were loving this beautiful child. And it was just these beautiful scenes of love in this life. 
And then it came to a scene where this beautiful child um, caused pain to another person. She was only a little girl and the other child was also um, a little bit older, but she was also a child. And then I realised, I recognised the scene and I realised that it was my life story. Anyway, I, I later on took this person that was in this scene, I took her to be my godmother. So I, I took um, Lydia to be my godmother afterwards when I came back. Um, but, yeah, he showed me this and I was really embarrassed that I'd hurt her because in his love, anything that was not of love was like you didn't want to be it, you know. <laughs> anyway, so I turned around to him and I said, well, I don't understand because what's this life about? You know, it was a tit-for-tat thing. She'd hurt me and then I said something very hurtful back to her. So I kind of thought, well, you know, if that's not right, me defending myself, what's this life about? How can I do life right? And he said, life is about love. And I said, oh, but that's not how it works down there. You know, that's not how it works. That's, you know, nobody lives like that. I can't live like that if nobody else follows those rules. And he just looked at me and smiled and he kind of giggled, you know, he kind of laughed a little bit like, I can't live like that if nobody else lives like that. Mm -hmm. And then he started telling me about uh, my free will and how I could have anything I wanted. I I could make anything I wanted of my life with my focus. So whatever I focused on was what I would manifest in my life. And this was huge news to me. But, of course, that sort of, that let me know also that I wasn't going to stay with him. And so I begged him to stay. And, um, yeah, I really got upset about um, being parted from him. And uh, he said, I'll never leave you. You know, I'll always be with you. Um, When I came back, I didn't, everybody else's unbelief influenced my unbelief and I fell into the uh, paradigm or the the zeitgeist of my environment, you know. So um, he told me he'll never leave me, but I still didn't want to leave. And, of course, because he told me about my freedom of choice, um, now he couldn't tell me that I had to go back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he, um, he presented these two scenes um, and he told me some information. And uh, But he presented these two scenes. One was of um, this beautiful young man and who ended up being my son. It was this, the love that came from this young man was just, I knew that I'd have the kind of love in my life that I really longed for. Um, and I knew that he loved me profoundly. And being 11, I, you know, I was very, you know, looking forward to, you know, having growing up and having my own marriage and family and blah, blah, blah. And so um, I thought to myself, oh, that must be my husband, you know, and he just smiled at me. As soon as I thought that, he smiled at me like, but he didn't give any information. He could do that. He could withhold information, but I couldn't withhold information from him. Um, so he just smiled at me. And then he showed me another scene where I was um, talking to a large crowd, crowd of people. 
And um, I said, wow, that looks like an, quite a quite a life. And I was already a, an older person and my hair was grey and um, I said, that looks like quite a, that looks like an amazing life. And for a split second there, um, there was sadness in his eyes. But then he said, yes, yes, it is an amazing life. Um, and I noticed that sadness and I thought, no, no, I want to go back and I don't want there to be any kind of sadness for him about my life. I will go back. And as soon as I decided in myself, I was back in my body. And I was back in my body. It was uh, it was very quick. It was though he's just pushed me and I was just back in the tunnel, but it was much quicker going back in than I was coming out. Um, yeah, and he was... Uh, yeah, he was no longer there and I was just in pain. There was a, um, a beagle had come along and was licking my right temple. I was laying down and I had struck my head on a rock and this beagle, this dog, and at that stage I wasn't, I was quite afraid of dogs and he was just licking my temple. He'd come from absolutely nowhere and I could just hear from the distance all these people panicked and running and, you know, and I was thinking, what's all the kerfuffle about and who are these people? And, yeah, I I had complete amnesia. Um, but, you know, they're telling me, you know, I'm saying I'm completely confused, but I told them immediately, Jesus is real. Jesus is real. You have to know Jesus is real. And I told them my near-death experience. And um, so they put me in the back of the car and they took me straight to the nearest doctor who basically said this is a right temporal lobe brain damage and this is something that happens when there's, um, you know, when there's trauma to the brain um, and, uh, you know, we just have to keep an eye on her for that and uh, she might need to go and have more um, exploratory Tests done, just keep an eye on her, don't let her fall asleep, blah, 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 blah. And um, so, yeah, it was was just made very clear to me. My memory returned, you know, four hours later or so. My mum my tells me now it was about four hours or so. Um, so, yeah, it, uh, it was disbelieved and I was really just, you know, knew that I would be labelled kooky and that I already was kind of different now that I knew this and that no one believed me and look this guy in a white coat told me it was brain damage and it didn't happen and here I am back in the land of earthly living and earthly living says it didn't happen Mm. so what to do with that I mean that was an amazing experience you had and I really appreciate you sharing that with us yeah it's my pleasure and privilege and Mm -hmm. honor to Mm -hmm. share it Mm -hmm. um i hope that my sharing encourages others Mm -hmm. um and that i can continue to support people to integrate their spiritually transformative experiences Mm -hmm. and their near-death experiences Mm -hmm. to a level where they have insights for their lives that truly help them um, with their purpose mission and um in so doing help our world evolve into 
the heaven on earth that Jesus showed me that it would be one day. Unfortunately, I'm on a time schedule here because of editing and processing. So I feel like we need a part two of this podcast, and I hope you and the audience wants to make that happen. Sure, yeah, I'm happy to do that. Yeah, Yeah, I think it would be great because I have questions to ask you. We didn't really even talk about the other two NDEs. And I had a podcast recently about someone who believes that the earth is flat. And you're the perfect person to ask this question. And for the people who've been following me along and watching my podcast over and over, I just want to throw this question out here real quick is, did you see the earth when you were up in the stratosphere? And was it round or flat? (laughs) Honestly, if I had asked my, if I was interested in that at that time, I would have an answer for you. But I can tell you that I was definitely, absolutely on a flat plane Mm. when I emerged from the tunnel. I kind of believe that people can go to different dimensions and you were in this kind of dimension that obviously it was flat, but then it was seemed like it was in space because the stars were behind you. And then you mentioned a dome over you. It almost sounds like you're on a spaceship in a way. (laughs) <laughs> you know, in a way, because if you have this dome, maybe like a glass dome or, or who knows, really. Yeah, I don't know. It seemed like, I don't know if that was my, uh, that was our, what I was able to see, but it seemed like a big dome world. Mm-hmm. Um, not like a Christmas dome, but it was just, there was something very archy and domey and round about it. But I definitely felt that I was on a very flat plane that basically had no dimension. It was Mm -hmm. like uh, mathematically, you know, one point to another point. That's amazing. Yeah. Let me switch gears on you. So do you have a Facebook page or are you on Facebook? And if people want to reach out to you, are you public or are you private? I have a private page for um, my friends Mm -hmm. because I'm, my professional work is in the counselling area. Mm-hmm. And so I have a, a professional page, which is uh, Pauline Glamachek, mm-hmm. um, counsellor. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- so that's spelt Pauline the usual way, and Glamachek is G-L-A-M-O-C-H-A-K. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can get on there if you'd like to make an appointment um, for uh, therapy or uh, coaching. I do spiritual life coaching and trauma therapy. Mm-hmm. I'm a qualified counsellor. Um, I also have an in-depth experiences support network page, which I will eventually turn into a group. Uh, right now I think I've got about 1,300 members, but I share their uh, validations and stories and and the latest things from science which correspond or co- correlate with, near, with near-death experiences because I've learned that really validation is such an important aspect of integrating one's near-death experience. Mm. So primarily the page is um, set up for that right now, but down the track I see it uh, becoming a group page mm. for, for near-death experiences. Do you have any other projects that you're working on right now that you want people to know about? I am writing a book, but it is uh, it is a matter of editing. Um, 
I think you probably know that people go off on tangents when they speak about the near-death experience because there's, you know, aspects of your life that you go through that correlate to the near-death experience. And then it's a matter of getting everything out there, but then sort of pairing back and thinking, well, what is going to be useful to my readership? And um, so I'm in that process right now. Um, But first I had to get everything out. So, um, yeah. Yeah, oh, I think there'll cool. be a series, a series of books. Um, yeah. And apart from that, I also work in, um, you know, uh, I work in the rehab space. I also work in as a um, substance abuse counsellor. Um, but, yeah, mainly my work is in counselling and I love doing that work. Mm, that's great. All right. Well, before we wrap it up here, do you have one last message that you can share with the audience? Um, one last message. I think the hardest thing for us to integrate as human beings is how very loved we are. You know, our mind plays tricks on us and can think of a million reasons as to why God wouldn't love us. And it's the easiest thing in the world on this earth to be separated from his love. But if we focus, if we put our focus to being in his love, we can transform situations, we can transform people, um, we can, yeah, understanding how loved we are, everything comes from our fear of not being loved, our fear of, um, you know, this reverting back to our first fear of hurt. Um, But when we can overcome that and embrace how very loved and lovable we are by God, that he's for us, um, our lives profoundly change and we receive guidance that we never thought we'd receive and, and we allow ourselves to receive. We Most of the time our minds are an impediment to our receiving, um, understanding, to our own wisdom, to guidance. So, you know, letting go and letting God is, is something that um, is a central practice of, of, uh, of mine. Yeah. Thank you for that message. And Pauline, thank you for being my guest. It was an absolute honor. Thank you very much for inviting me. I wish you the best. I hope you come back soon and uh, have a great rest of your day. I do hope we speak soon again. Mm. You also enjoy the rest of your evening. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.